This episode is brought to you by Tabard Inn, new American cuisine in one of Washington, D.C.'s oldest hotels, located in DuPont Circle. For more information, visit tabardinn.com. Hello, and welcome to this episode of Speaking Broadly. I'm very excited to be doing a deep dive this month into coffee, which is something I know something about, but I'm learning so, so much more. Um, Today, we're going to go into the future with coffee, into the world of startups. My guest today is the head of content for Cometeer, Rupa Bhattacharya. Rupa, I'm so excited to have you here. Thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. This is so exciting. So tell me about Cometeer. What are you trying to accomplish? Cometeer is this incredibly fascinating thing that has never existed before in coffee. What it is, is it's essentially coffee that's been brewed incredibly strong into a tiny little aluminum recyclable capsule, which is then flash frozen essentially at the moment that it is at its absolute best. So what that means is you essentially have pour over quality coffee without a machine or a barista. Right now it's being mailed out as a subscription. Um, Hopefully it will be in stores and restaurants and train stations and everywhere you need caffeine soon. But it's really exciting because it just, I've never seen a format like this with the potential of changing coffee come along before. I mean, we've seen formats that have the potential of changing coffee, but for the most part, they're not generally for the better. And this is really exciting because it is. Let's talk about some of the coffee innovation of the past that you guys are sort of leaving in, in the dust, like instant coffee. Sure. And like instant coffee, it's interesting, right? Because like that is a comparison we get all the time and it's not instant coffee, right? Instant coffee has somehow either been dehydrated or it's been altered in one way or another to essentially be reconstitutable, right? So it's either a powder or it's granules or something like that. This is just coffee. It's coffee. It's been brewed really strong. So you dilute it. You dilute it with hot water or cold water or like oat milk if you're super fancy. But yeah, no, this is, it's just, it's beautiful pour over quality coffee in a tiny capsule. They called me, they came to me about it. And I, I heard the, the people, the recruiter, and I was just, this is absurd. This can't possibly be right. You know, I went to their website and I noticed that the first thing was like an award from the Specialty Coffee Association. Um, I came from food media and we'd run several stories about how demanding they are and how, you know, and I was like, if these guys like it, okay, like, let's talk. And then I saw the roasters they were working with and I was like, oh, all right, let's definitely talk. Um, I was shocked. I was definitely not expecting this to be something that could change coffee. And I think it might. So how did these scientists come up with this proprietary method? Has this been years in the making? Years, absolute years. Um, our CTO uh, co-founder is this guy who, you know, has this incredibly long and storied career working for various forms of, of the state. The company's based in Gloucester, Massachusetts, Douglas Hoon. And he's, he's a man in his 70s, he's brilliant. And he was absolutely sleeping on a cot in his office in Gloucester, Massachusetts and showering at the local Planet Fitness because he was convinced that this was possible. And it would be possible to genuinely make a coffee that captures all of the essence of beautiful pour over and makes it accessible to lots of people anywhere. And why did he care so much? Like what part of this story intersects with him? Like, was it all about coffee or he's really a scientist? Cause that's quite a demonic possession. He doesn't even drink coffee. No. I swear to you, he doesn't even drink coffee. Um, and so Matt, uh, the founder, the, the CEO is an absolute coffee obsessive. He had his first cup of George Howell. It blew his mind completely. And so Matt was always, always been on, like, there's got to be a way that everyone's got to taste this coffee. He, he had his first sip of George Howell and he was like, you know what? All the coffee I've had my whole life has been a lie. I need to fix this. I need to change this. And so he is, you know, a lifelong entrepreneur. But 
basically, I think you give Doug a challenge and that's what happens, is what you end up with this thing that's going to revolutionize the way that coffee gets consumed. And what is his background that makes him capable of revolutionizing the way coffee is consumed? Like, what does it take? What type of brain does it require to rethink coffee? I think one one of the things that's really interesting is the question is, like, why hasn't any of this been done yet, right? And so, like, we developed the first recyclable capsule. So it's made out of beer cans and soda cans, and it's fully curbside recyclable because we're brewing it on our end, so you don't have grounds in your capsule like you do with K-Cups. So they can just be recycled, right? They they don't don't have to worry about, you know, the extra grounds. We compost the grounds on our end in Massachusetts or, you know, with local businesses. No one had just asked the question of why isn't this like this yet? So I don't know if it's necessarily the type of mind, but I think it's the type of mind that sees things missing and says, hey, what if it wasn't, right? What if it was different? What if we did this? So part of the genius is in the um, recyclable cans. And I will tell you, I have such a personal aversion to the K-cups. They generally don't taste very good. Like the resulting coffee doesn't taste very good. And there's so much waste. It just like, it breaks my heart. And so you're solving a waste problem, but you're, you're also solving an extraction problem, right? I mean, in order to make the coffee taste great when it's reconstituted, it has to be extracted in a certain way to get both the salas, which is the flavor, as I understand it, and also the aroma. Because, God, what would coffee be if you couldn't wake up and smell it? Like, it's just a totally different thing. So is that also a problem that he was solving for? And why hasn't that been solved before? So yes and no. So K-cups are really interesting because, and you know, I'm not here to, to talk badly about other people's businesses. But on the other hand, you know, I will say that like some big wigs at K-Cup companies are investing in Cometeer because they, they see it too. Um, but a couple of things that's interesting about K-Cups is that the way that they're packaged um, and fresh coffee, when you package grounds, right? Because when you grind them, they essentially give off gases. They exude aromas, right? In order for you to be able to seal a gr- grounds or ground coffee or roasted coffee in a package, you have to be able to vent them, right? Otherwise they explode. A K-cup will literally just blow because of the the power of the off gases. So what that means is you actually have to let them get stale. You have to let them sit in giant barrels, staling. There've actually been attempts before at packaging coffee that is fresh that have led to explosions. Like if you Google, I think, blue bubble explosion, you'll you'll see there's a problem. That's a problem that you have to solve for. So with K-cups, it's like that old joke that's like the food is terrible and there was a little bit. And so you're looking at like six to 12 grams of coffee per capsule um, that has thus far been like deliberately staled such that it can be packaged at all, right? And with us, it's 26 grams per capsule, but it's brewed. Like that's not a problem because you're not, fresh coffee doesn't off gas. It's, It's frozen. You know, it's not it's not off gassing because it's not grounds. But I will say that, you know, every single morning for the last year, I have absolutely smelled my coffee in a paranoid sort of way to make sure that I was okay and still had my sense of smell. But there is proprietary technology, right, for like extracting the coffee and then the freezing it. You hit it with liquid nitrogen once it's brewed. Is that how it works? Yeah, it's it's flash frozen. Exactly. It's flash frozen the minute it's brewed. And yeah, no, there's this room in the, in the in the facility in Gloucester that I have never set foot in. I don't know that I will ever be allowed to set foot in it. It is it is basically like Fort Knox of coffee. Ooh, why not? Oh, it's top, top, top secret. Really? Uh, yes, yes. No, there's like three people allowed in there. Um, and you have to sign in and out. It's like a black site for coffee. So, okay, so you don't go in, but you know what goes on in there. In, in yes, in vague terms. I know that there's there's been an incredibly long 
development process. And I know that they've been working extremely hard in various ways. They've measured just an incredible list, like the list of things that they are measuring for and counting for when they perform extraction is just remarkable. So it's an incredibly complex procedure that results in this incredible cup of coffee. Well, let's talk about some of your amazing coffee partners, because, you know, you could have all the great technology in the world. And then if you start with not the best beans, you just don't end up with the best coffee. And so what has been the process of like finding the partners? And I'm also just curious. So you call them up and you're like, hi, we want to take your amazing beans and then turn them into like a frozen disc that comes in an aluminum can. What do you think? Like, what is, what's that been like? It's, you know, honestly, I think, so George Howell is a founding partner, which is, I think, such a blessing in so many ways. Um, given his experience, given his background, given who he is. Tell people a little bit about him who might be like, George Howell who? Is he on, you know, Gilgan's Island? George Howell is, I think, the, the nickname he gets around the, the country is the godfather of specialty coffee. He is essentially the person in many ways who escorted the wave of third wave coffee into America, really changed the face of how America drinks coffee in a lot of ways. Does he have a very particular like vision and point of view he must about like what makes coffee good? Like when he's training the roasters, like what is that? What is the George Howell either flavor or method just to help people understand that? You know, it's interesting. He's the, you, you don't taste a bean and you say that's a George Howell roast. I mean, I don't personally, but in my experience, what I see from him is that he makes the beans taste the most like themselves. He describes his, his approach as being one of sort of very buried in respect, grounded in respect, respect for the grower, respect for the bean, respect for the person who's going to be drinking it at the end. So in a lot of ways, I feel like the George Hall roasting process is kind of like salt and cooking, right? Like it's like he brings out the flavors and makes it feel more like itself. And that thing of like, this is what this particular coffee bean, this is what this particular bean in this moment with this climate tastes like, is really beautiful and I think that has, in a lot of ways, was possibly, given the timing, kind of one of America's earlier introductions to the idea of terroir. Um, it wasn't as quite as broad as, you know, wine was at the time, but I feel like what George is trying to do with coffee mimics in a lot of ways what sort of the wine world, especially in the last 20, 30 years, has been trying to do with wine. So beautifully put. Fantastic. Okay, so George Hall was one of the, the founders, would that be accurate? of Cometeer. Yes, he's a founding partner, yeah. And so what that means is that, you know, when you have George's name attached to something, all of a sudden, when you're calling people up and be like, hello, I would like to put your incredibly beautiful beans into this insanely, this banana-sounding futuristic technology, it turns out it gets a lot easier. And so that's been a huge, tremendous help. And so the roasters we work with now are just this who's who of just some of the country's best roasters. And it's so exciting because you get to see what they're doing and you get to see what they're up to. And you get to hear about what they're prioritizing. And then the other thing that's really exciting is that uh, George also founded the Cup of Excellence, which is, as I'm sure you know, it's the, the competition every year, the annual competition of like the best beans in the world. And those beans almost never make it to America, right? Almost, almost never, Inc incredibly infrequently. I saw them somewhere on a list earlier this week, but it's very rare. Wait, where did those beans go? I always thought we had the best of everything here in America. I mean, there's just such a good market for them in Japan and sort of in the Middle East and all over the place. So more often than not, those beans don't make it here. That's honestly fascinating, and I did not know that. Where are those beans coming from that are the best in the world? So each of those, each country essentially picks its best crop to go out and compete in this cup of excellence and a bunch of coffee graders all sort of score them separately and and the winners win 
Um, so there's usually the best of each country and then sort of the, that come out of this. And we have bought a bunch of this cup of excellence coffees. And because fundamentally, it's really interesting, right? You can have the best glass of wine in the world. I mean, who knows what that would even cost, right? But the best cup of coffee in the world, you're looking at like 10 to $15 for something that is absolutely the best in class of what exists in the world right now. And that's remarkable. That's in, I mean, sure, 10 to 15 bucks is a lot for a cup of coffee. But when you're talking about the best in the world, that's, I can't, it's, I'm really hard pressed to think of anything else that you can get the best thing in the world for that much money. What defines the best in coffee? Because I feel like with so many things in life, like what you think is best might differ from what I think is best. And yet in the world of coffee, there are seemingly objective measurements that people adhere to. So what are those? Like what makes it the best? So it's really interesting, right? Because from my personal point of view and my sort of jobs point of view as the best coffee is the coffee that you enjoy, right? But there are, in fact, and there are people who train in this, as you know, there's Q graders and people, and there's a whole system of grading that sort of quantifies how a coffee's expression manifests in XYZ ways. But to me, in a lot of ways, like what my job is here is to convince people that the coffee that they are enjoying is the best coffee. And what they could do is take that variant of coffee, no matter what it is, and make it moderately better. What has happened with coffee in this country is that essentially because of it's, it was more convenient to many big coffee purveyors to essentially burn their beans for the sake of consistency and then tell people that that's premium. We've trained an entire nation's palate with this idea that bitter, charred, burnt means that it's expensive and means that it's right. And so getting past that massive boulder that's in the way of so many folks understanding of what a good cup of coffee looks like. And while also understanding that like coffee is really personal, right? I came from wine before this I was working in wine for a while. And uh, it, it's incredibly sort of laden with class and how you see yourself is how you drink your coffee. And you see it every election cycle, somebody makes a blunder with what they order and how they order it, right? Because it's it's read in, in some way that suggests that they're drinking the wrong kind of coffee for who they are. And I think so much of what I'm trying to do is convince people that there is no wrong kind of coffee for who you are. Yeah, I guess I'm getting a little tripped up here because if there's no wrong kind of coffee for who you are, which I 1000% agree with you on, then, you know, presumably like this notion of the best is a little bit tricky. But um, the notion of a bean expressing itself to its highest power. Like that makes sense. You know, like that's sort of all we can ask of any of us as humans, you know, be the best we can be. And that's what we can ask of the, of the beans. And that's what you in fact are asking of the coffee and the way that you're creating it. But you, you're working with really some wonderful roasters. So I was wondering, I had never heard of, and I'm sorry to say, maybe this is just gigantic ignorance, but um, of Red Bay before? Red Bay is an incredible coffee company. It was founded um, by this guy named Kebakante, who is a former jiu-jitsu champion. Um, he calls it the coffee dojo because it's a place of education and learning. But um, one of the things that's really beautiful about Keba and his approach, his coffee itself is incredible, but his approach is very, very intentional and very specific and very much about bringing the sort of people who have historically been excluded from the coffee discourse, specifically folks of color, into the coffee discourse. So he makes a cafe that is actively welcoming to black and brown people. He hires in a way that is actively welcoming to black and brown people. And the other thing that I think is super fascinating, something I think about all the time, is the way that his tasting notes are written. His tasting notes presume, don't presume rather, this idea of universal flavors and palates, right? Like, 
I mean, I used to I spent 11 years at the Food Network and I'm a brown woman from New York. Casseroles to me are exotic, right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm with you there. Also, uh, New York born casseroles. Don't, don't know about that. Genuinely, there are so many varieties of casserole that I only learned about at the Food Network. There's something recently I learned about a sausage ball, right? These are all foods that, you know, I've been in food for a really long time. But so Keba, you know, makes sees this and makes it real, right? So for Keba, um, one of the things that he does with his tasting notes is that he has his entire staff, who in large part have experiences and backgrounds that diverge from traditional coffee shop employees, necessarily might, and he uses what they feel. Um, how does Cometeer dial in for the flavors of the different roasters? Like, are they treated differently? Is everything extracted in the same way? How do you keep the individuality among the roasters? So there's actually a custom process. It's a great question. There's actually a custom process for each individual, not bean, but type of coffee we bring in. So each harvest of, you know, X from Joe's or such and such from counterculture is brewed in a way that brings out it, its its best, essentially. So the, the, the process has changed in terms of like how we brew it. So there isn't just a generic process. There isn't just like, okay, you go into the commentary machine and the robots make your coffee. It's very specifically calibrated in a way that allows us to sort of bring out the best in each cup of coffee. The different roasters, different flavors, different each season you get to like dial in exactly what makes it best for that bean. Yeah, and so because you, you're also just dialing in, um, as opposed to, you know, a, one of the things that we hear from like really fancy coffee people is that there's absolutely a frustration and uh, with the idea that once you get a pound of coffee, you, it takes so much time to figure out the right way to brew it that you end up losing quite a bit from dial-in shots. You end up losing, by the time you're, you've figured out the best way to brew this coffee, you're halfway through the bag or three-quarters through the bag, and you're kind of not enjoying it the same way. That is fascinating. I mean, just to be at that level of geek, I'm just like happy to you know grind it and pour some water over it. But I can understand how people are trying to get like their exact right cup, and if it's a natural thing, so it, it changes each time. Exactly. And so one of the things that is kind of cool about this is that this system allows you to essentially, because we've calibrated on our end, what that means is that there's a lot less waste as a result of that. Because the process is so much more efficient, we end up paying the roasters and by, by, by that the farmers um, three to five times as much as uh, commodity brands do because the process is so efficient that it lets us pay, it, pay them more, which is amazing. One of the things that's really cool about that too is like, you know, somebody like George, who really has just straight up said that his mission at this point is to create generational change, right? Like, so one harvest isn't generational change, but a system where you've figured out a way to pay people more money that they can then reinvest in their farms and their communities and growing the kind of beans that, that, that people want to have and, and, and invest in quality, that changes. That changes a generation. And in talking about changing in a generation, apologies if this is sort of outside your ken, but what what's the relationship between sustainability environment and coffee right now? And how does Cometeer address that? Fundamentally, you know, coffee is a crop that is grown halfway around the world and consumed in another half of the world, right? Or consumed, we're consuming it in a half of the world where it's not really being grown, right? And so in, how do you mitigate that? How do you mitigate the environmental implications of that, right? And so some of that is developing a recyclable capsule. Some of that is composting all of our grounds and making sure that that goes into sort of our local community where outside the facility in Massachusetts to make sure that that can go back into the earth. You know, it's, it, a lot of it is just is building in these ways. And then some of it is genuinely just paying people more, which is also just sort of being more sustainable in terms of how people can live their lives. A lot of it is just very much building systems that allow for a better use of the earth. 
I think that's that's a, a worthy goal. And so you are head of content. You've had an illustrious career in food media. What drew you to creating this type of content? And what type of content are you going to create going forward? That's a really good question. I mean, so, so much of my career thus far has been about sort of meeting people where they're at and improving their lives in one way or another. I've spent a lot of time at a lot of different publications across television and video and print and, and digital. And so what's happening here is that this is an entirely new coffee ritual, right? I mean, you're not brewing the coffee anymore. You're melting the coffee. Um, we make the coffee. You're melting it and you're enjoying it. And what does it mean that you've created this new ritual? What does it mean to displace the existing ritual, right? And does it displace the existing ritual? Because, you know, I mean, I was an editor-in-chief at a food publication for a while. Um, I got pitched a lot of coffee products and all of them were bad, you know, <laughs> like almost I mean, without exception, they were almost all terrible. And, you know, there's there's some real skepticism in the world for good reason about can this coffee product actually be something worth consuming? And what's really remarkable and what was drew me to this is that it is, but also that the, the, the way that it can be consumed is so much better for the world than the way that coffee in many ways is currently consumed, right? Like the actual market for non-recyclable cups, K-cups, et cetera, is massive, massive. It's a huge market, like coffee pods. And you know, the coffee's not great and it's not great for the environment. So what if you did that, but better, right? And so a lot of what I'm trying to think about is how do we position what we're doing? How do we explain what we're doing? How do we explain what this is, right? Because essentially we have massive facility that we've built into like this 70,000 square foot flavor factory that's just extracting coffee in a essentially a dark site. How, how do you convince people that this is exciting and good and positive and what, is it, what does that look like? So we're going to take a quick break and when we come back we're going to talk more about coffee. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Tabard Inn. Tabard Inn, Washington, D.C.'s quintessential hotel, is located on a quiet, tree-lined street just five blocks from the White House. Vibrant yet unassuming, the Tabard is comprised of 35 sleeping rooms, each unique in character and design. Feast on an eclectic American cuisine in their acclaimed restaurant, or enjoy a cocktail served on the beautiful patio, which has ample room for social distancing. Travelers from around the world find the Tabard the only place to stay when taking their travels to Washington. For more information, visit tabardin.com. Welcome back. You're listening to Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network. And this is Dana Cowan, and I'm talking about coffee with an incredible expert, Rupa. I'm so curious how you're taking this idea of frozen coffee, something that no one had really thought of before, and turning it into a ritual. Like when I make coffee, you know, I actually really like the part that's the grinding the beans and, you know, putting them in the cone and then pouring over the water. And that's like part of my process. But now the process is super fast. Like, how do you think about ritual? That's a really good question. And that's honestly, I think that's the, the gist of what I'm trying to do right now. It's the pour over ritual is beautiful. I, I bought a pour over out this morning. because there's a new coffee shop in my neighborhood. Um, and I went to go check it out. And, I, and you know, watching it be made was beautiful. And right now, you know, I have a partner who drinks an entire pot of coffee without thinking about it. So I can't afford to keep him in commentary. Frankly, like, I think if I tried, I could not, I would go broke very quickly trying to keep him in commentary. So no, I mean, we still make drip in my house. We buy Joe's, who's an also a commentary partner um, from the shop in the corner. 
And, uh, you know, how do you convince people that this different way of making coffee, how do you make it special? And is it, oh, you open your freezer and you curate which of your five coffees that you've gotten in your subscription, is that the moment that's special? Is the moment that's special, like, sliding into the cup? Like, what's the thing that's special? How are you thinking about building community around this? Because I feel like, you know, there's the opportunity there for all the people who want to try something new and want to do something better for the earth and are obsessed with coffee. Like, you know, it's the intersection of many things that define a, a type of person in a community. Have you thought about like ways that you want to build this community? Absolutely. I mean, there's a couple different things, right? One is that, first of all, um, it's so good for traveling. Uh, Helen Russell, who's one of our roasters, she's uh, also an incredible cyclist and she takes it with her on, on trips because you can just have a little a capsule with you and it's super easy. And you, all you need is water. So people use it for travel, but people use it. Where else do people take it? Like where else? I want to know where you're taking it. I want to, if you're taking it up a mountain, if you're taking it, you know, to the beach, if you're taking it on your, you know, on your cycle trips, like where's it going? And also it's TSA compliant, which is kind of cool. So you can take it on a plane and just ask them for hot water and never drink plain coffee again which is pretty exciting to me personally. Uh, that's amazing. But you also need to, I guess you'll have come to your little fanny packs, right? With with um, freezer packs inside them. They're actually coming. No. Did I tell you that we're no. doing this? <laughs> we are actually doing this. No, yes, we are absolutely commissioning a, fan, a come to your fanny pack that is insulated, holds a box of eight capsules so you can sneak it into Coachella or whatever. Yeah, it seems like you would absolutely need that. Otherwise, you know, what happens to the coffee in the capsules if they defrost? Like, obviously you have liquid there but is that usable what happens so they're good for three days in the fridge so on the weekends or whatever i will um just take a box out and stash it in the fridge and we'll that'll be the weekend comment here and so you can just sort of pour it off and and do it they stay in the freezer for 18 months they have a very very long shelf life so you're not making too many but yeah they're great for travel you can take them with you and then and then freeze them when you get sent somewhere and so what was the state of your own coffee experience but before commentier right like where do you fall on the obsessive to not ob- obsessive realm so we were obsessive by accident basically i started buying sort of nicer coffee because the shop i was going to uh was not very nice to me and so i started going to a better coffee store because i was like you know what screw you guys i'm gonna get better coffee and so i started going and we started grinding our own because like the places that we were going like wouldn't grind them for you or, or the grocery store or whatever so i fell into it by accident like 20 years ago i got really into it and then worked above ninth street espresso for a while and attained sort of mythical regular status there, shockingly. But I, you know, I have a nine-year-old and coffee is in a lot of ways, like the only way that I function. So it's somewhere between, like I'm absolutely like an incredibly busy human being who also needs to mainline caffeine in order to exist in the world. But also I really enjoy beautiful coffee. With your tremendous food background, I'm wondering whether you've taken Kamatir and made like great coffee floats or have you used it in cooking at all? Or is that like a perfectly terrible waste of a very good and expensive product? No, it's really good. It's really good. So, okay. I have been doing some playing around with it. I would like to eventually start commissioning and developing recipes uh, for it. But at first I want folks to understand how to drink it as coffee. Um, so that is absolutely something on my list. But you know what does really well? It does the affogato. It does a beautiful affogato. And just in case anyone doesn't own an affogato, as you just want to describe it. Oh, absolutely. It's poured over ice cream. And so you pour like a capsule over sort of vanilla ice cream or something like that. It's beautiful. It's really nice. There was a long time ago in San Francisco, the blue bottle in the Mint Plaza would do an ice cream of affogato with blue bottle espresso and the Humphrey Slocum, which is a San Francisco ice cream brand, their secret breakfast ice cream, which is bourbon flavored ice cream with cornflakes in it. And that pour over haunts me still because it was so good. 
Um, and I haven't done anything similar at home with that yet because I just, like, I feel like nothing I do would ever live up to it. So, but that's in the back of my mind. No, you know what's really good for also is um, coffee syrups, things like semi freddos. I don't have an ice cream maker. I'm sure it'd be really good for ice cream. I bet it would make a fantastic coffee ice cream. But I did a semi freddo with that and some um, hazelnut cookies and a cometeer, like, uh, a syrup swirl and, like, the chocolate wafer cookies. And that was pretty tight. That was pretty fantastic. I have not done a whole lot of savory with it. Although I bet red-eye gravy would be really good. If you did like, you remember the old Dave Chang, the, the red-eye mayonnaise he used to do at Sambar? Oh my God, absolutely. Or I mean, certainly like barbecue sauce. Totally, oh yeah, absolutely. Like a barbecue sauce with like a, a sort of smokier thing, like a rib situation would be nice there. Like something with a little bit of fat and like where the coffee and smoke would cut through it would be cool. In, in order to like prep for this job, did you read or research or go deep on coffee? And if you did, um, I wonder if those are resources that you could share if anyone who's listening like wants to know more about coffee and sort of get up to speed in this whole world. Yeah, there's an incredible documentary called The Story of Coffee, which I think would re- I'd recommend to anybody. To me, also, one of the things that the best way to learn is to taste side by side. And that's so tricky, right? Logistically, it's a pain because cupping is messy and a giant nightmare. But Tasting anything side by side really is the only way that I feel like I've really learned about anything that's so complex that it's hard to get. Um, One of the things that's actually cool about this particular format, it's a lot easier to do a side by side tasting, right? Because you don't have to brew three separate coffees. You just drop three cocktails into three cups and add hot water to them. So then all of a sudden you have like a cupping setup, right? Or like a, a tasting setup. But yeah, no, I can't. I mean, I worked for a wine magazine years ago. It was one of my earliest jobs in food. And I tasted 80 wines a day, 40 in the morning and 40 in the afternoon. And like, I have never learned so much at any job ever as I did there because it was just literally 80 wines a day. And you're not numb by the middle of the day. And you're like, I mean, I get the spitting and all that, but I always found in my own time of wine tasting, I just have a very low limit, like 10 wines. And I'm like, they all taste the same. They're all really good. Like I taste fruit. There's acid. Can I get out of the room now? Like, how do you maintain interest over 80 different wines or 80 different coffees if you're cupping for a day? I mean, I think it was 80 different coffees. I don't think I would sleep for a week. I think I'd look like some sort of like Looney Tunes character running around like a bright. But I think that, you know, tasting three coffees side by side or tasting five coffees side by side, and especially if it's roast levels, you're talking about different roast levels. You're like, okay, well, this sort of lighter roast has like a little bit more like tea-like astringency, brighter red fruit, you know, a medium roast has like a more like a almost caramelly toffee type situation, like maybe a milk chocolate. And then your darker roasts have that like sort of richer leather, tobacco, dark chocolate sort of vibe. You can definitely like, you know, start there, start with roast levels, maybe three different roasts from the same roaster, same three different roast levels from the same coffee purveyor. So you know that they're essentially sourcing for the same kind of things. You can eliminate variables, essentially. That makes so much sense. I mean, I I always wonder because there are so many variables because there's the country variable and there's the elevation within the country variable. And then there's the when it was picked and the season and the how it was transported. And there are so many between the growing and the terroir and then the roasting and then the actual making of the coffee. So in all those roast types, what, what do you like? You know, I grew up drinking Darjeeling, um, specifically Fresh Flush. Uh, and so what that means is that my taste palette is extremely sort of prejudiced towards where you see the most Darjeeling sort of type notes, honestly. Um, and that's generally light roasts from Ethiopia 
are my favorite coffees. At the end of each show, I ask my guests to give a shout out broadly to a woman they admire in the industry. And I wonder if there's someone who you'd like to give a shout out to. I think the shout out that I have to give is um, to Samin Nosrat, who of course is not an unknown whatsoever. But one of the things that Samin has done that I think is so beautiful is taught people so much about how to trust their own palates and how to understand what flavor is and understand what they like and how to communicate with people about flavor and understanding and and themselves and how they like to consume food in a way that sort of is really beautiful um, and somebody who I take inspiration from quite a bit in pretty much everything I do. She is without question an inspiration and an inspiration to so so many people. Just her approach to food is so embracing and so warm. So thanks for sharing your knowledge. Thank you for sharing your time. And to all of you listening, there'll be more coffee to come. So watch out for next week's episode. Thank you so much, Rupa. Thank you, Dana, for having me. This has been a pleasure. Speaking Broadly is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without the support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.